0: Perhaps you have an idea now of what Jesus would, more important than anything else, want Brandywine Grays to be marked by. The scripture starts with when he had gone out. Who? After he had gone out. Who, church, who who had gone out? Judas. Judas. Judas is always identified by John as the betrayer. The betrayer has gone. So, I've, when I, when I try to preach God's word to you guys, when I try to, I really want you to be where I get sometimes when I am meditating on Scripture and I find myself gripped by the drama and the irony and the, the passion. Of this moment and moments like it in scripture, sometimes I wish, I was telling the guys, would you pray that the church would feel something of what I feel when I'm by myself meditating on God's word. And I don't know if it'll happen, only, good catch, right? Only (laughs) if a lot of people wouldn't have been as fast as that. (laughs) But I lost my message. Wouldn't that be awesome if it deleted my message? I'll be fine. If you can't preach without your notes, you're probably not ready to preach. But it is nice to have them there. <laughs> what I what I pray sometimes is that that we would that God would do for you what he has done for me. I'm praying that the spirit of God would touch your heart in some way as you think about what is happening here. This is a very emotional moment. These guys have been together for the last three years. This is his last meal, his last meal with the disciples. And the scripture tells us that after he had gone out. Have you ever been in a context or a small group setting or a group setting where there is someone that you know does not like you? Some of you nodding yes. I can nod yes. I've been in settings where I knew that someone, even though they may say nice things to me, they do not like me. And when they leave the room, there is a sense of relief that comes over you and you start to act yourself again. Jesus loved Judas all the way to the end. But Jesus knew that Judas was a betrayer the entire time that he was spent with them. And so there is undoubtedly, there was undoubtedly a tension that Jesus always felt whenever he said things when when Judas was around. But now Judas is gone, the scripture tells us. The community has been cleansed. The foot washing has taken place. Jesus is giving these last words to the 11, not the 12, the 11, his true disciples. This is, guys, huddle in, look me in the eyes, get close. I know you guys love me, and I have some words to say to you. My children, he says. My children. Some of these guys are older than him. This is a, what theologians would refer to as a farewell discourse. This is just like what a father on his deathbed would say to his family as they gather. Kids, I've got some final words for you. Bring it in. And huddle right here. Bring it in, guys. Judas is gone. And he's going to betray me. And this whole thing is getting ready to go down. What I came to do I'm getting ready to do. In a little while, you won't see me anymore. Suffering, death is what awaits him. And so he gives them their clear marching orders. This is this is the farewell discourse. This is, guys, this is what I want you to remember about my life. This is what I want you to remember. When I leave and my presence is no longer with you, I want you guys to be about one thing. I want people to look at your lives and see something that tells the story of my grace. I want you guys to love one another in the same way that I have loved you. What's Jesus saying? He's saying that our love for him ought to authenticate itself. There ought to be visible authentication for our love for God. If if the only way someone could ever know you're a Christian is if they ask you and you say yes. But I think sometimes we act like that. We answer that when the census comes around. We, we, we put down, do you know, putting what you believe on the census has very little to do with what you really believe. Jesus is saying, it's not an answer to a yes or no question. It results in a lifestyle. Your love for God shows up in your love for other people. Your love for God shows up in your love for others. So if you want to see vindication of your claim that you're a Christian, then the litmus test is to look around you and to say, do I love other people? Do I love the people that God has placed in close proximity to me? Because if you can't say yes to that, or if others wouldn't say yes to that, then you can't, there's no visible authentication of your love for God. Do you see what I'm saying? So if you are a bulldog with your Bible, but no one ever feels any love from you, that is a problem. That is a real problem. Because you're someone who the scripture says is growing in your knowledge of God's word, which puffs up. But you're never getting around to doing what the word says. Jesus tells us that our love for him will show up in our love for others. It visibly authenticates that we're real, that we're true. Schaefer calls love, Francis Schaefer calls love, the final apologetic, the final proof that you really are a follower of Jesus. Jesus talks about love. We have all kinds of misunderstandings about what love is. You're confused about love. what love is because you've breathed in what the culture tells you love is and Jesus wants you to understand love he says this a new commandment i give to you that you love one another just as i have loved you you also are to love One another. Love. A verse. A summarizing verse. For what our lives. Should look like. A new commandment I give you. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you. You also. Are to love one another. Simple enough. For a toddler to memorize, to understand, to appreciate. Toddlers know love when they see it. And yet, profound enough that supposedly mature Christians are repeatedly embarrassed by how poorly they comprehend Jesus' words and how poorly they put it into practice. Even the kids are quiet. (laughs) Preachers always listen for pin-drop moments. That was a pin-drop moment. That was no one even coughing moment. I want you to feel the love of Christ that would motivate this kind of love, but I want us to be challenged. There, there it was. This is a really bad stand. I think Amy got this off of Amazon for me. We're just going to lay this down. I used to have a good one. I lost it. I don't need it. So what I want to do here with the minutes we have left, is I want to make sure that we understand this definition of love. I want to understand love as Jesus defines it. So you got to set aside all your preconceived notions of what you think love is, and we're going to unpack love. We're going to seek to understand it by its three facets, three things we need to know about love. That come right from the text. The meaning of love, as Jesus defined it, the power of love, and the promise of love. The meaning of love, the power of love, the promise of love. The meaning of love, the power of love, and the promise of love. So let's start with the meaning of love. The scripture tells us, now is the Son of Man glorified. The son of man glorified. What does that mean? Remember I told you before, good Bible study, good Bible reading is to underline words or highlight words that keep getting repeated over and over again. Did you notice in the first few verses that John keeps talking about glorified son of man? That's Jesus being glorified. God, the father being glorified. If God, the father is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once right now. What in the world is John talking about? We don't understand glory. Glory is is like the, the fame and celebration of God for who he really is. Being magnified, being celebrated. And Jesus says, Judas has just betrayed him. And he says, now, right now. After Judas' betrayal, the Son of Man is going to be glorified. How is Jesus going to be glorified? How is this taking place right now? The trap has sprung. Everything's in motion now. Where is Jesus headed? Church, you should know from this story where he's headed. It's only going to be a little while longer. Where is he headed? He's headed to the cross. He's The cross is the now he's talking about. The cross is the place where God, the Father, is most glorified, and, and Jesus is most glorified in the humiliation of the cross. The joy of God, the fame of God, the happiness of of. The world, the glory of the Father, the glory of the Son. Where? When Jesus gets nailed to a cross. That is, remember I was talking to you guys about irony? That is the most ironic thing. A humiliating, shameful, naked, dead on the cross is where God, John says, glorified, 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 glorified. the fame of God at the cross where the Father and Son stoop to save mankind. Sometimes I look at humans and I really don't like them. Sometimes I look in the mirror and I really don't like myself. Sometimes, though, I look at humans and I love them. Yesterday, I was weed whacking, and there was a woman waiting to hand me an Amazon package. She couldn't get my attention out. I, I looked up and I was like, oh, she wanted me to put the weed whacker down. I put the weed whacker down, and she handed me my package. And I don't know what it was. Maybe she was a Christian. I don't know. She just smiled at me. This older woman delivering packages for Amazon. And I took the package with my earplugs in. Probably said, thank you, really loud. But I felt like I, created in the image of God, someone smiled at me and i felt something of god's heart towards humanity the cross may look weak but it's the point where god undoes all of humanity's sin and reverses the consequences of the fall it's right there where god accomplishes that the whole bible is pointing or reflecting on this moment where God and the Son are glorified. Now Jesus says to them, this close huddle, he says, where I'm going, you cannot come, just like I told the Jews. But then he qualifies it later with Peter. He says to the Jews, where I'm going, you can't come. To those that have rejected him. To this inner circle, though, he says, where I'm going, you can't come now, but you're coming later. That's the category you want to be in. You want to be in a category where Jesus says, you know, I'm going to ascend, but I'm going to come back for you. That's what Dave's going to preach next week. He's preparing a place for us. This isn't our home. Heaven is our home. He's coming back to get you. That is incredible hope. But it's not a hope if you're not in the category of those that he actually has rescued and saved. So he, he tells him he's going away. And then he says, until then, guys, this is what you must do. This is what you must be about. And he doesn't go through that list. I want you to be about powerful worship sessions. I want you to be about. Get your Bibles out. Know your Bibles. Now, should we know our Bibles, church? Yes. Yes. Some of you are hearing me say, "Ah, oh, it doesn't matter, you know, he's up there just talking. He's a... No. No, but our love for God is what that manifests in, and our love for one another. So Jesus sums it all up. He's... you you might want to take a test where you would do better if Jesus changed the the grading system. Like he's saying, he walks through the church and he's looking for something. And he might see all kinds of things. Ministry here, ministry B, ministry C, you know, doing all these kinds of things. College, College ministry, kids ministry, men's ministry, addict ministry. We got all these things going on. They could be a reflection of love. They also might be a reflection of our own pride. Jesus is looking for something, church. When he walks the halls of this church, when he walks the halls of your heart, he's looking for this. Love. And it's not, we're talking about the meaning of love. We have just such widespread confusion of love. We tend to think of love as the feelings of love. Which feelings are important? I love feelings. My personality profile is such that feelings are incredibly important. God gave them to me. But Jesus says to the disciples, a new commandment I give to you. And it's all surrounded with love. But you ought to be asking, how is that new? Was that a new command? Did Jesus just get interested in love? Was was love not important? Before Jesus said this command, what's new about it? Jesus, the the Old Testament says that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So love is not a new idea. The, the, The scripture says that you should love your neighbor. The Old Testament says you should love your neighbor like what, church? Like you love yourself. What's new about this? Here's what's new. He said, you should love your neighbor like you love yourself. Now he says, you should love people like, not like yourself, like I love people. That's a higher standard. If someone comes up to you and says, would you rather have the love that Kenny can show you or a person can show you or the love that Jesus can show you? Take Jesus. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. Jesus' new commandment: Love them like I love you. Remember, I washed your feet, and I'm headed to the cross. That kind of love. It's not a feeling. See, we think of love. I love how social media uses hearts to show loves and likes. Right? We, I love you. I loved your tweet. I love you. I loved your photograph. you haven't. You haven't loved as Jesus says love. It's a focus not on feelings, but on loving action. Jesus is saying, all that I have been for you, and all that I will soon be for you, you be for one another. That's love. The meaning is self-sacrificing. That's what love is. It's self sacrifice. Whatever the world says is not what we're interested in here. We're interested in what Jesus says, and Jesus describes love as he has loved self sacrificing. My life for yours. Love is defined by the cross. The cross is the new measure by which love is defined. The cross is the new measure that we use in the gospel community. The cross is the new normal. Remember when Doug Peterson after the Super Bowl said, winning the Super Bowl for the Eagles, we'd waited so long, he said, this is the new normal around here. He doesn't even have a job anymore. You know what I mean? Like that new normal didn't last. Jesus is hoping for a longer lasting new commandment normal. He's expecting that you, as followers of Jesus, if you're truly a follower of Jesus, then your love for others will authenticate your love for God. Another way of saying it, your love for God will show up in your love for others. I think this is what I see And I think this is an incredible cultural moment for us as Christians. Because so much seems to be going wrong around us. This is where God does some of his greatest work. It's there at the cross where it's like, things can't get any worse than this. Where God is most glorified. We have this opportunity as Christians to do something. To actually live in obedience to Jesus' commands. What should we do between now and when Jesus returns again? I'll tell you, I'll summarize it up. You should love one another. That's what Jesus is saying we have this incredible opportunity, but I think too often what I see among Christians is a group of people who are starting to focus on everything they're not. We're not this. We're not that. We're not this. We're not that. And there's a place for that. But what, if we're always talking about everything we hate, Can I just ask a question? What do you love? That's what Jesus is going to ask us. We're making it clear, perhaps, what we won't stand for. What will we stand for? What will we stand for? Here's, here's, here's my reality. Maybe it's not yours. No one has ever treated me more unlovingly than Christians. Why would that be? I mean, why would that be? B. We really need to think on that. DA Carson, I love this quote. You will too. It's big, heavy words, but listen to where he goes with this. Orthodoxy. That's attention to biblical doctrine. Doctrine, theology, without principle, obedience to this characteristic command of the new covenant is merely so much humbug. What are you saying, D.A. Carson? He's saying that if you understand God's word, but your life does not demonstrate an obedience to this simple characteristic command of love, it's so much crap. He's way smarter than me. That's how I would say it. (laughs) This is humbug. Are we more about humbug are we humbug because we're more about other things than we are about principle obedience to the command to love one another? I hope not, church. I hope not. That's the meaning of love. Let's move. These other two will go a little quicker. Let's talk about the power of love, and let's talk about the promise of love. We're defining love. We're seeking to understand love as Jesus has defined it. We've talked about the meaning of love. The meaning of love is self-sacrifice. The power of love. You see it here, right? Where's the power? A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, verse 35, all people will what, church? No. No what? That you're my disciples if you what? Love one another. So there's the power of love is that it is the apologetic that argues for the reality of Jesus Christ. He's, he's saying that if you love one another, then you will be a walking testimony of the gospel. Francis Schaeffer is saying a loving community is the final apologetic. It's the proof. It's the visible authentication that you are who you say you are. And there's a lot of unbelievers who are who are discovering as they observe Christians or at least people who identify themselves as Christians something that does not look like love and what is that doing? It's diluting the power of the gospel. Church is not based on our common interest in the same things. This is not a club for people who happen to be interested in this kind of thing. It's not based like other clubs on a common outlook. It's marked by love for one another. It's marked by an inclusiveness that echoes the universal appeal of Jesus. The gospel welcomes all people. It doesn't matter what your background is, doesn't matter what your age is, doesn't matter what your gender is, doesn't matter what your color is, doesn't matter what your moral history is, doesn't matter what your social status is. It doesn't matter what level of influence you're bringing to the table. It doesn't matter your intelligence quotient or your religious background. The gospel is the good news that Jesus has died to save sinners and it's for everyone. <laughs> to love like Christ is to love indiscriminately, it's to love universally. When that kind of love flows within a congregation, then the world will take note that they have been with Jesus. I want that for us, church. Once I was sharing the gospel in the supermarket with someone who did not know Jesus, and and they were really troubled, and I was really trying to care for them. And someone that was listening to the conversation actually became a Christian. Why? Because they, they heard me trying to love someone who was really troubled. They listened to the gospel that I shared with the other person. I wasn't even talking to them. And they became a Christian. I wish I had more of those. I wish I had more of those. Like, when's the last time I did something loving that people are taking note of and saying, how does that person do that? I was on the phone with Isaac last night. His son is like in his 65th day in the hospital. One of them spends the night, every night in a hospital. Have you ever tried to get a night's sleep in a hospital? The whole hospital is watching this family. Lord, I pray that you would heal that boy. Heal him, Lord, and bring him home quickly. But this is an opportunity For the love they have for one another to demonstrate and and portray and advertise the gospel. There's power in the gospel and it's an evangelistic power. There's power in our love and it's an evangelistic power. We should want more of our neighbors, more of this community community more of the people that we work with, to come in touch with the gospel because they see love in us for one another. Amen? Amen. We've talked about the meaning of love. We've talked about the power of love. Now let's talk about the promise of love. The promise of love. And the band can return. Jesus is leaving them. This is heartbreaking news. Peter hasn't heard a word that, well, he has heard. He hasn't heard the new commandment. All he's heard is that I'm going, and where I'm going, you can't come. Peter has heard that. And Peter is stuck on that thought. He's not thinking about this new commandment. He's stuck on this idea that Jesus is leaving and you can't come. I love Peter. I mean, he's the kind of guy that would definitely get on your nerves sometimes. Peter can't tolerate the thought of the Savior leaving him. He, can't, he, has, he has no category for it. If you read the scriptures, you will notice that the gospel writers always put the disciples in a certain order, Not all of them, but there's two that are always in the same order every time. One of them is always first, always. Do you know which disciple is always first? Peter. One of them's always last. Go home and look at them. You read the gospel accounts. Who's always last? Judas, the betrayer. Peter's always first. Judas is always last. Peter's always talking first. (laughs) He's always opening his mouth and sticking his foot in it. Sometimes he says things that are profound. Sometimes he says things that are so stupid. He's bold. He's impulsive. He's confident. We remember him for his, save me, Lord, sinking in the deck. But we forget that we walked on water. Even before he met Jesus, Peter was a let's go kind of guy. But when he met Jesus, he had something to live for. And so he was first out of the boat. He was first out with the sword. And he was second to the tomb only because he didn't jog as fast as the other guy. And he can't bear for Jesus to leave. But Jesus says that there is going to be some some consolation for the lack of his intangible presence among them. Do you know what that is? It's their love for one another. That will be, that will function like Christ's presence among them when they actually love one another. What's the promise of love? The promise of love is that we're going to, to be this demonstration of Christ to the world, of Christ to one another through our love for one another. And John, writing later in another book that he wrote in 1 John, says no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So you see what he's saying there? He's saying you can't see God. But, but how could you see God? It's through the visible authentication of your relationship with Jesus that manifests itself in loving other people. That's the presence of God. Listen to this Francis Schaefer quote Our love will not be perfect, but it must be substantial enough for the world to be able to observe it. Or it does not fit into the structure of the verses of John 13, right here, and John 17. Jesus prayer, which we'll be coming to soon. And if the world, Brandywine Wine Grace, if the world does not observe this among us, if the world does not observe love among those who would call themselves Christians, the world has a right to make two awful judgments, which these verses indicate. One, that we're not really Christians, and two, That Jesus was not sent by the Father. There's a lot at stake. There's a lot at stake. If this church isn't what Jesus wants it to be. A place full of people that love one another. There's a lot at stake. Because what's at stake? One, we're actually not Christians. We're just playing. We're just playing church. Or two, that Jesus isn't who he says he is, that Jesus isn't real, that Jesus didn't come from the Father. How do we do it, though? That should be the question. This, this kind of love, the, when we understand the meaning of love, we understand the power of love. We understand the, the, the promise of love. When we see these things, we should ask, how can we get more of that in my life? How can I do more of that? Because I find it so hard. You see how, how Peter says he's going to do something loving for Jesus. What's he say he's going to do? He's going to lay down his life. I No, no, no. I am going to love you. I'm going to lay down my life for you. How ironic is it that Peter is not going to lay down his life for Jesus. He's actually going to deny Jesus by morning three times. But Jesus repeats the question back to him. You're going to lay down your life for me? It's a total flipping of the script. That's actually what I'm going to do in a couple days for you. Do you see Peter's gross ignorance of his own human weakness? He can't do what he says he's going to do, even though he might have the heart's desire to do it. He can't do it. You may be inspired by this definition of love, to go and love others the way Christ has loved you, but you find sometimes when you try to do it, it's so stinking hard. It's so stinking hard to love people the way Jesus loves them. I just can't do it. Then you're in a great place because then you can ask for the Holy Spirit to help you to do what Jesus wants you to do. And the Holy Spirit desires to help us to do whatever Jesus has called on us to do. One writer said this, sadly, good intentions in a secure room after good food are far less attractive in a darkened garden with a hostile mob. You have some good intentions right now to love on one it's safe in here. It's safe and, and you feel good and you feel happy, but then tomorrow you get up and you find, man, this is kind of hard. People don't like me when I act this way, or people don't like the things I do. I find myself living in a hostile environment. That's when you need the power of the Holy Spirit living in you to help you to love people the way God has called us to love them. Peter isn't able to lay his life down now. Jesus says he will lay it down, though. Peter doesn't realize how right he is. He's just got the timing wrong. In 30 more years, he will lay his life down. A martyr for Christ. Crucified upside down because he didn't consider himself worthy of Jesus. So he's going to make good on it. He's just got his timing off. But we must ask, Ourselves, And this is what we'll do in closing. We must ask ourselves, what is the difference between Judas and Peter? Because Peter ends up failing Jesus in a significant way. That's the end. Mark my words. I say to you, the rooster won't crow before you deny me three times. This ends on Peter's failure. We've got to ask ourselves the question, what's the difference between Judas and Peter? Both saw Jesus' signs. Both heard Jesus preach. Both received Christ's love and heard his appeals. In his final hours of his life, both of them failed Jesus, their friend, miserably. Both abandoned him in the hour that that he needed them the most. Both grieved Jesus' heart and added to his pain. Both of their failures are spectacularly public. I mean, I've had some failures in my life, but like we we know of these over and over and over again. Both are known around the world for their failures. One is lost. The other is saved. One repented, sought Christ's mercy, and went to heaven. One, overwhelmed with remorse, turned upon himself, took his own life, and went to hell. The seeds of their failure planted in all of our hearts. Do you know what it's like to deny Jesus? Do you know what it's like to betray Jesus? We can only cast ourselves on His limitless mercy, knowing that He will not cast away even one of us who come to Him. What's the difference between Judas and Peter? Love. One of them loves Jesus. One of them rejects Jesus. Jesus loved them both. Listen to this poem that I'll end with. Because we are all betrayers, taking silver and eating body and blood and asking guilty, is it I? And hearing him say yes. Couldn't Jesus have said yes to Peter? Is it me, Lord? Will I deny you? Will I betray you? Hearing Jesus say yes, it would be simple for us all to rush out and hang ourselves. But if we find grace to cry and wait after the voice of mourning has crowed in our ears. Clearly enough to break our hearts, Jesus will be there to ask us each again, do you love me? It starts there. If there's no love for Jesus, there won't be the manifestation of love for others. There it is, church. Straight from Jesus. That's what he wants us to be known for. Love. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Why? Why is love better than faith? Why is love better than hope? You won't need faith in heaven. You won't need hope in heaven, but you will love for all eternity. Let's go, church. Love for our camp.